Welcome back to another episode of Slayhouse Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today is Sunny Morain. Sunny Morain is the writer of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and generally weird stuff, with stories published in outlets such as Tor.com, Clark's World, Strange Horizons, Nightmare, and Uncanny magazines. A refugee from academia and the possessor of a PhD in sociology, Sonny also writes, narrates, and produces a serial horror drama podcast called Gone and served as a writer on the Realm Fiction podcast series, The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. They live near Washington, D.C. in a house that may or may not be haunted with their husband and two cats. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to hear more about this house that may or may not be haunted because I am a sucker for a good, ambiguous uh, haunting story. I mean, that is kind of a story in itself. Okay, so very briefly, um, this this is a very weird renting situation. We kind of slid into it uh, when some of my friends in my PhD program were vacating it. We needed a place really quick. And this just happened to fall into our laps and it's perfect. Um, it is the ground floor of a two-story house. Uh, our landlord, we think it's our landlord. We're not 100% sure. She's never admitted to being our landlord. She lives in another house on the same property. Uh, I think she's still there. I haven't seen her in a few months. Um, <laughs> I, I hope I hope she's <laughs> she's not dead and we'll find her in like a couple more months. <laughs> But um, yeah, it's nobody lives upstairs that we know of. We're pretty sure she's kind of a hoarder. So we think it's just for storage. But every now and then, like, I do hear creaks from up there or things scratching in the walls, probably a raccoon <laughs> or a possum, but I can't be certain. And if you see it from the outside, you're just like, oh, that's a murder house. Like a million percent. That's a murder <laughs> house. So, yeah. I love that. Uh, I, we have so many murder houses out here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, oh, God. <laughs> Southern Gothic. Yeah. I, yes, yes, absolutely. And my my wife and I, we live just outside of Fayetteville. And uh, where we are, it's it's like super rural, right? So like Fayetteville, <laughs> I think, has a population of, of maybe 100,000 or something. And then you get out here and the, the population of our little town is less than 2,000. I think. I think oh, wow. We, yeah, it's really tiny. Um, and so the further out you get along the highway, it's it's all just murder houses. It's <laughs> it's just these weird shanties that were built 150 years ago and That's nobody awesome. really resides in them. Yeah, it's uh, I love it's that vibe. Quite, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite a vibe, but we don't drive at night because it's just like just asking for trouble, of course. Oh, God. So um, I brought you on to talk today about uh, some of your writing and specifically your shadow half remains which is a novella that is coming out from tour nightfire in february and so um i kind of wanted to just kick off with you a little bit what is your shadow half remains and uh and and you know how did you come into writing this absolutely terrifying novel Oh God. Okay. So this is, this is the sort of question that authors I feel like should rehearse an answer to. And of course I don't. So you asked me what my book is and I'm just like a collection of words. I don't know. <laughs> right. um, it's well, I, I, I should, I guess, I guess a good place to start would be sort of like how I got hooked up with Tor Nightfire, which would be that they uh, got in touch with me to write a short story for a uh, kind of anthology collection that they were putting out um i think they did like two annual ones called mm -hmm. come join us by the fire and this was oh god i think this had to be in 2020 so you know we were in it was like summer fall of 2020 so we were like deep in pandemic at that point and i wasn't publishing very much at that point um and i was starting to get into the writing drought that i think a lot of us got into in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 and sometimes now and so i kind of jumped on somebody offering me a contract for something and just being like i can write something and i wrote the short story that ended up being expanded into this book and i they didn't ask me to expand it i was looking for something else to send them and i just got in touch with the editor i had worked with and was like hey i think there might be enough here for something that could 
would be a good bit longer. Would you be interested in seeing that? Uh, and she said, yes. So I managed to turn, I think, 5,000, 6,000 words into close to 40,000, which uh, wow. there was indeed a lot more there, I thought. <laughs> I mean, I had hinted at, I think, a much deeper world that I thought was really worth exploring in some depth. And I mean, it is very much a pandemic story. I was working through a lot of the feelings and thoughts I was having at the time. Again, you know, 2020. But 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 I and and we you know we can get more into this. Yeah. The the issues that I was working at that I was working on in the book that uh, I think are most obviously pandemic related, uh, paranoia, isolation. Uh, the what happens when human connection becomes lethally dangerous potentially <laughs> um these are actually except for the you know lethal danger of human connection these are are actually things i've kind of been writing about for a long time i've definitely been writing for a long time about sort of the existential horror of intimacy mm. um that's actually i think a really really big recurring theme in a lot of my stuff I swear my marriage is very happy. <laughs> We're, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. But I mean, it's it's the the idea of how connecting with somebody else on a deep level is always kind of dangerous because you're mm. so vulnerable when you do. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, you you're you're signing up for almost a form of annihilation when you intimately connect with someone oh, gosh, because yeah. you can never be fully yourself. The only way to be fully yourself is to be not connected with anybody. And obviously that's no way to be, but a little piece of you is always going to be someone else when you're really intimate with them. And that's beautiful and wonderful and worthwhile, but there's also something about it that I think is kind of existentially horrifying. So when um, the pandemic happened, that was, I was like, oh, I can do something completely new with this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So before we, we dive into all of this stuff that I've just written down, <laughs> because there's so much to unpack. There's here. a lot. Just basically the, the premise of your novella, if you would. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I probably should have started with that. Told you this is something I should rehearse. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the premise is, well, okay. I, I, I have a little bit of ADHD, so I'm like trying to organize my thoughts and not completely get lost here. Um, the basic premise is for some unexplained reason, and it really doesn't matter why, Eye, eye contact, human-to-human -human eye contact suddenly becomes something that generates uh, homicidal insanity. So you make eye contact with someone else uh, and you will try to kill them. If they you know, have gotten infected, they will try to kill you. And ultimately, uh, you either die by suicide if you can't you know, kill anybody else, or uh, in about half an hour, you go into convulsions and you die anyway. Um, they figure that out because they try to restrain somebody who's been infected and uh, she goes into convulsions and dies. So it's lethal no matter what. The only question is, how lethal will it be to how many people? Mm. And that's all kind of told in flashbacks. And in present tense, it's focusing on a woman named Riley who has basically gone out to live in a cabin in the woods uh, because people are increasingly isolated because it's the only way to be safe. And... She's been on her own for a few years at this point, and society still exists, but it's not doing well. It's mm. kind of limping along. And she gets a new neighbor, and hijinks ensue. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, she, she finds herself increasingly drawn to this person because, oh my God, it's like human connection. And she finds that she's needing this in a way that she didn't expect. Uh, but by the same token, obviously, it's just dangerous to do this no matter what. But also, it it becomes increasingly clear that the long time in which she's been isolated has really degraded her mental state and made her incredibly paranoid. You know, there, there are also some hints further into the book that uh, she may have had some pre-existing issues even before this plague happened. So, yeah. Yeah. Things just kind of go downhill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> downhill they go as, as often happens in horror. So there, there's so much again to kind of unpack from this book because I think it's doing a whole lot and I don't want to get too spoiler heavy in our conversation about it, but I do think that some conversations, you know, are, are going to have some mild spoilers, but sure. we, I, I guess we can start with this 
notion of like the pandemic story, right? And and kind of how this is in a, t- a sort of way, a kind of a timely assessment of our own, you know, mental health as we continue to deal with this pandemic, because it's not as if it has ever left. It's right? not over. No, it's, it's no. absolutely not. Um, and whether or not we're just transitioning into a stage in which this is just going to keep happening, we're just... The COVID is going to circulate around like the flu does every year, like, uh, you know, the common cold, just an ineradicable disease. You know, what were some of the things that kind of framed up the urgency for you in discussing a story about a pandemic that is so lethal? One of the reasons why it's a little, it's a little hard to answer this question is that it involves putting myself so much back in that headspace that I was in, in 2020 mm-hmm. and 2021. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's difficult because that's a heavy thing to kind of get your head around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's difficult because one of my coping mechanisms for trauma is to forget. So there's actually like yeah. big chunks of that time period that I don't remember super clearly. <laughs> and also it's, it's difficult because as, as you say, there are a lot of ways in which I'm kind of still there. Like I haven't really fully emerged. I still spend a lot of time alone. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that that kind of aren't pandemic related. I was already spending a lot of time alone prior to 2020. But I mean, for me, it's, I think one of the other things that complicates this is that the short story was written in 2020. Mm. uh, I think, again, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly the timeline here, but that was before we had like a vaccine. And before it was, it was safer to actually go out and be around other people. And then the expansion of it was written months after that, where, you know, there was this increasing push toward normalcy, but a lot of us were saying like, this is, this is really, this is based on a false premise. Things are not normal. If we try to go back to normal, it's not really going to work very well. Uh, And I would argue that in a lot of ways, it hasn't worked terrifically well. Things are not normal. We really want to believe they are, but they're not. So I was in the, in the initial incarnation of the story, I was just working with the emotional and mental damage that I felt it was doing to me and to most people I knew to just be alone all the time. And Mm. how even those of us who are naturally kind of introverted and don't spend a ton of time with other people. Uh, which I think I definitely is me most of the time, we're suddenly feeling like this fear of human connection, but also just this desperate need for it. Like we just mm-hmm. really, really needed to reach out to other people in any way that we could. And then the, so, so, so that need and f- need for human connection and fear of human connection was, I think the first thing I was working with. And it was what I was feeling most acutely. And also just the sense of reality kind of starting to slip away mm-hmm. as, you know, your sense of linear time starts to disintegrate. And also when things change very, very quickly, mm. like that, that was something I kind of already knew about given some of the stuff I studied in grad school, but it was, it's, it's one thing to know it. And it's another thing to really be faced with it. Just how fast things can change yeah, and how fast you can get used to them, even as it's still surreal and you still can't quite process what's happening Mm. so those were the things i was dealing with first and then um the things i think i ended up dealing with a lot more in the expansion were kind of a sense of aftermath of not more of that uncertainty of like what is our actual state because one of the things that, that that i found most deeply disturbing about the end of 2020 and a big chunk of 2021 was how like society didn't collapse. We kind of went through a something that in fiction usually ends up being kind of like a society ending apocalypse. Right. And things didn't collapse. Institutions didn't fall apart. Everything kind of just kept limping along and it just sucked is all. And I was like, in some ways it would almost be better if everything collapsed because then there would be the possibility to do something else. And instead Mm. what's happening is that we're just grinding along and it sucks and it feels Mm. unsustainable. 
in a lot of ways. And so that sense of unsust grinding unsustainability, but all it, like it should stop, it should end, but also it's not ending. Mm. And it feels like everything is fraying and coming apart. And just the sense of being increasingly overwhelmed by that feeling. That was, I think, a lot of what I was working with in the expansion. And um, I still feel like that, honestly. That hasn't gone away. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think often about sometimes the utility of the dystopian story, right? And dystopian fiction. And, and why are we so drawn to stories about like kind of our own kind of, I don't know, symbolic destruction? Um, yeah. I think, I think I've, I've read in places that there's kind of an analysis, if you will, of generational literatures, like the literature that kind of frames a lot of millennials' lives, a lot of the, the, um, late millennials kind of have the literature that defines their generation. And for a lot of millennials, it was like the hunger games, right? This right, idea right. of a world that is just kind of built explicitly on the exploitation of a certain group of people. And that's like, that's how the world must function in mm -hmm. order to, you know, to work. And I think about how I think, think pandemic stories are starting to shape a kind of generational moment too for a lot of not just millennials but I think a lot of Gen Zers as well and and the way that we just perceive society in these moments I think that this novella struck a real chord for me for the things that you're saying the the way that society just kind of keeps going and we're never left enough space to really breathe or really think about yeah. the way that our lives have changed. It, it's absolutely that something shows up or, or something that shows up in the novella. I think it's something that we're all dealing with too. I look at politics, especially and the way that we've accelerated, you know, kind of this timeline for the scariest elements of our political system. <laughs> and I wonder how much of that is due in part to the fact that we had this extraordinary crunch on our resources, extraordinary crunch on, you know, just ourselves and our feeling of the world is different in this point in time, you know, than it was going into this particular moment. Yeah, it's, and I mean, it's, this isn't, I, I wouldn't say that this is explicitly a political book except in the sense that I sure. think kind of everything is political. Right. And I think that's, I think that that's definitely, I think that's definitely present. It's, it's, it, it's a, it's a book that is, I don't know that I would say that it's pessimistic about the future, but it's definitely not optimistic. I think it's more for me personally, it's groping toward the idea that there might even be a future. Mm regardless of what that future ends up looking like. And without spoiling it um, too much, I think that that's kind of where it ends for me, is that is that idea of we might have a tomorrow, but I have no idea what that looks like. Yeah. And that might be something to hold to, but it's, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. I'm struck by like the first chapter of the book, uh, which I will spoil. It's uh, Riley is out throwing her phone into a lake, you know, next <laughs> to her house. And that opens up, you know, kind of a grander contemplation on this theme of isolation, which I do want to dig into. But, you know, I, I, I'm struck too by how that also reflects on, on kind of the character's thoughts about a future. You know, she doesn't really see it a future where it's necessary to have a phone to be so interconnected to the world in a way that I feel like we all are kind of omnipresently, right? Like mm -hmm. everyone has their phone on them all the time. Even as we're talking, my phone's going off with communication <laughs> from people, you know, um, and, and just how different your mindset must be if, you know, you're kind of already thinking about, well, I'm just going to chuck this in the lake and we'll see what happens, you know, roll, roll those dice a little bit. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think it's worth noting in that sense, what Riley isn't doing. She's, you know, if, in, in this future, everything has to be like, you can't really go to a grocery store. Everything is delivered. Right. Everything is automated. Um, everything's delivered by drone. 
and and they're, they're, the world building here is I think it's I think it holds together okay, but I do think if you poke it and ask too many questions, it does kind of start to unravel a tiny <laughs> bit. Um, but I mean, it's background. It's it's mostly just kind of a thought experiment that serves as a platform on which to kind of look at what what is happening to this character. Um, so that's my defense of the fact that the world building is not hundred percent altogether. I, I, I think in defense of your world building, I bought it. You know, I was like, okay, I, well, that's I the important thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that it's unfounded. You know, I, I, I felt like, well, of course we would transition to these kind of gig uh, economy jobs, you know, people delivering people's food, uh, you know, via, via messenger or via drone or what have yeah. you. Um, because you do talk about, you know, some of those elements of, of like the way that society adapts. And I think what's really important is that you craft a narrative in which society adapts and it's maybe not the best way to adapt no. right, to the situation, <laughs> right? <laughs> no. It's very dystopian, but I, but there is this sense of like the machine goes on whether or not you're participating in it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that really is to me again, kind of like horrifying and, and dystopian, but she really given that the only way she can really survive is to is to have that contact with the outside world even if it's just to order the stuff she needs mm -hmm. she does still have a computer at that point but getting rid of her phone makes her less resilient given how mm -hmm. important it is for her to just be able to order things and she doesn't have a garden and mm -hmm. she doesn't have like solar panels or a generator she's not homesteading She's right. living really precariously and she doesn't seem to even recognize that she should be doing things to make her, her herself a little bit more robust and a little bit less subject to um, systems that are increasingly breaking down. Like the power is going out a lot. Mm -hmm. Power is very unreliable. Uh, presumably, you know, out that far, she either has access to, you know, a well or or something, but like, you know, that's still, if you don't have like a hand pump, that's still like not a very stable way to get potable water. And yeah, she's, she's just, she's not a survivalist. And the fact that it honestly never even occurred, like that's not in the book because I thought about it and then decided not to have her do that. Mm -hmm. It never even occurred to me. Like as it doesn't occur to Riley, it doesn't occur to me. It didn't occur right. to me writing it. And stepping back and thinking about that, I think it's because the future to her is so unreal. She's just living so day to day. And so in, in such a reactive mode that she's not planning. She's not thinking about, okay, you know, this is my situation. How do I make my future possible? She's just existing. And that lack of ability to imagine a future, I think, is... I don't know. Like just talking about it now, it's hitting me in kind of a really deep, uncomfortable place. Cause I think that's sort of a vibe for a lot of us right well, now. I, and I don't want to make you more uncomfortable, but I do want to pose <laughs> the question to you as an artist and, and as someone who has also done through, you know, gone through a lot of academia, you hold a PhD. Why do we find these stories or why are we attracted to these stories that kind of carry the seeds of our own destruction, you know, or, or why are we drawn to that abyss to kind of stare into it? Do you think? Ah, oh, I mean, that is, that is such a great question. And it's a question I've seen a lot of people asking like for, you know, pretty much since these stories existed, like, why do we tell these stories? And I mean, I think there's a number of things going on. Um, first of all, I think that, stories like this are places where we can they're kind of safe spaces to engage with emotions that we feel like we are going to be feeling anyway like at least for me personally sometimes these things are almost practice like mm. the rehearsal for feeling stuff that is you know sparked by things that are real um i'm actually kind of reminded um there's a youtuber i really like dan olson folding ideas yes oh. uh yeah he's and and he came out with a video in 2020 in like early 2020 um called i think i can't stop watching contagion <laughs> and it was just it was just basically about how he found it so perverse that in the midst of an actual 
pandemic of the kind that the movie Contagion is about, because it's about like, I think a, a novel flu, like it's, it's about a novel respiratory right. virus yeah. um, that devastates the world very quickly. And he was like, I am watching this movie over and over, even though it's my life. And I remember that ne- like all of the films that were about that, like Contagion, Outbreak, they all shot to the top of like the Netflix rankings. We were all just immersing ourselves in these narratives in 2020, it seemed like, or a lot of us were. I think a lot of us weren't, but a lot of us were. And I think it was because that was how we were trying to process what was happening. Mm. And I think, and that, and that was obviously very cute, but in, in the sense of kind of like the broader genre of dystopian fiction and apocalypse fiction, post-apocalypse fiction, whatever you want to call it, I think that increasingly, I think we feel like our, our, our lives are very precarious. I think a lot of us don't really feel like we have very much control anymore, mm-hmm. if we ever really did. And there are powerful forces out there that are just kind of making the decisions about our lives for us. And those forces are making decisions that are increasingly leading us to careen toward disaster mm. on so many levels. Mm. It's just a form of trying to process what we see coming at us anyway. Now, I, I do want to note, I have sort of wondered, I wondered as I was writing this book, is there going to be a market for it? Because, yeah, early in the pandemic, I think a lot of us were kind of immersing ourselves in these stories. But I'm getting the sense that there's a huge amount of fatigue now. Mm. Like there are a lot of people who really do not want this kind of fiction. Mm. And I mean, just, just, just looking at the, just looking at the stuff that's winning a lot of like the tends to win Hugo's right now Uh in science fiction and fantasy, that stuff, a lot of it is really cheerful and upbeat and warm and happy. And I've got absolutely (laughs) no problem with those stories. They're not what I tend to write, (laughs) but I got no problem with that at all. I'm glad that fiction exists for people who need it, but it, I, I do notice that at least, I mean, horror is horror and, you know, we're all mm-hmm. ghouls, but at least in, in these other genres, it seems like a lot of people are running away from this kind of story. So, yeah, I, a, I, I don't, I don't really know what's going on there. That's a fascinating idea, you know, to kind of bring up. And I can't speak to what is or is not marketable, except that I am a compulsive reader, right? So like, you put a book that looks like your shadow half remains in front of me. And I'm absolutely the the first in, I'll push people out of line to get to it <laughs> faster. Right. Um, that's definitely the kind of reader that I am. Um, but it, it does raise a, a, an interesting question. I, I'm going to pitch to you my hot take and, okay. and we'll see if you maybe, you know, agree or disagree. But okay. I think that, you know, to a certain extent, there is a need for something maybe a little bit more upbeat. Not necessarily because I think that, you know, it's it's like just more marketable or something like that. I feel like there's this idea of like alienation, like our alienation from society. And I feel like it's gotten exacerbated from the pandemic. I, I feel mm-hmm. like we've been alienated for a very long time. I don't know that we've dealt with that very well, but the pandemic really opened our eyes, I think, to the way in which our alienation just grows closer and closer to utter completion. Yeah. And so a lot of what we're seeing as a reaction, you know, we see unions uh, growing stronger across the country in places, which I think is a positive thing. And I think that- you know, I think that comes from a, an awakening to the fact that so many people were just stomped on <laughs> by yeah. this pandemic. They were either displaced entirely or, you know, this concept of the um, essential worker. And yet these essential mm. workers are earning less and less every day with yeah. inflation and, and rising housing costs, you know. So I feel like we're being crunched all over and there Mm -hmm. needs to be an alternative. And so literature has an opportunity, I think, to maybe address our alienation and to propose to us alternatives to the way that we're living right now. And those alternatives become very attractive. Simultaneously, though, I think there is a need to continue to talk about our 
alienation so yeah. much as it continues to galvanize for us our situation, drawing our attention to it and causing us to think about the way that we've structured our lives. And to that end, I think that art like Your Shadow Half Remains fulfills that function of drawing our attention to that alienation. And I think that your book especially does it through this theme of isolation, this idea of both the the pressure of self-isolation and also this societal isolation. How do yeah. we manage that? And, and what are healthy ways or unhealthy ways of managing that? I don't know that Riley is very healthy in her decisions. Uh, no, I don't think she makes very many, very good, very good choices at all, ever at any point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, for me, and I'm honestly finding that everything I write now is like this. Uh, I've just, I just finished a book. I'm working on another one. There's, I've got a couple others in the pipeline. Um, suddenly after having a very hard time writing for a couple of years, I suddenly don't seem to be able to write fast enough, which is a good problem to have. <laughs> but uh, it, all of what I write now is just a primal scream. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's good because I think that that's where the good stuff is. And yes. at least in my experience, because it's it's sincerely felt, which means that like readers mm. who are there for that shit will be able to tell that it's sincere. And that means that you have ability to make a, like a, a deeper connection with a reader. But a lot of what I think was really going on in the writing of the book length version of this story was the experience of feeling like I was increasingly being gaslit yes. in that, in, oh in that I was... Because yeah, like I, I think I think that stories about you know an optimistic future and resiliency and community, I, I love that, and I think that those are desperately needed. And I, I and and I'm you know, that's that's work that I'm very glad that we've got so many talented authors doing. But also, I feel like for the last two years, I've just been told over and over again, "Walk it off, you're fine, mm. you're fine." Millions of people didn't just die. You're fine. Uh, we're not still, you know, those of us who are like, you know, immuno immunocompromised, they're not in lethal danger. We're not just cutting a huge number of people out of society entirely. Mm -hmm. You're fine. And not fine. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> fucking fine. Nobody I know is fine. And it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, again, not, not to get too overtly, you know, overtly political about this, but it's sort of like, hearing from the Biden administration how good a lot of the economic indicators oh my are gosh, on yes. paper, how good the economy is. And it's like, granted, I mean, yeah, no, that's true. I'm not denying that any of that data is true, right? but the vibes are fucking rancid, guys. Well, and it, it, it begs the question too, like it's true for whom? Like for who whom? is benefiting? Who, who is the, who is the one who's looking outside at <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> at a, 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 an ecology that is dying around us, right? Who's looking yeah. outside and saying, you know, with the the price of housing in this country, that we're all good, we're we're good, we're all doing fine, right? And wages are still way flatter than they should be. I mean, it's better than it used to be, but that's not that's more an indictment of how bad things have been. It's less of a you know saying a good thing about how things are now. Yeah. And I just. Yeah, I'm just I'm just feeling the need to scream in my writing. We're not fine. We're not fine. And we're not going to be able to get better unless we're willing to actually look why we're not fine in the face. And I'm not like explicitly or I'm not I'm not doing some kind of like a deep social critique in this book, I think, mm -hmm. so much as mm -hmm. I am trying to capture a certain kind of pain and alienation, as you say, because mm -hmm. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I think we are all. Oh, it, it intensely acutely alienated from each other and I think it's been like that for a long time because again you know just to get really overtly political for a second I think that that's kind of what capitalism kind of does because it mm. serves the holders of capital to keep people from organizing it's one of the reasons why the labor movement is so heartening right now that is yeah. that is people directly striking against alienation yeah and I love that it's much, much easier to keep the status quo, to keep a really, really bad status quo in place if none of us feel like we can make authentic connections with each other. So that I think, yeah, that is at that sense of isolation and alienation, that is at the root of a lot of why the vibes are so rancid. And I hear very few people in any kind of position of real social power 
being willing to name and shame there, I think in significant mm. part because some of the people they would be naming and shaming are themselves. Mm. Oh yeah, snaps to that for sure. <laughs> so some more of this stuff that you kind of talk about in this book, um, of course, is this like existential horror of intimacy. And I found this mm. to be very, very fascinating mm. for, for a number of different reasons. Um, I have kind of historically always struggled with like building relationships and maintaining those relationships. I I only recently found out that uh, I got a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, um, which I've had my whole life, but uh, I've not known about it my whole life. And, and only in retrospect now am I able to start kind of piecing together you know, all of the the kind of signs, the clues in my life right, that right. explain who I am and, and why I see the world the way I see it. But I, I think that this book really struck a nerve with me, especially because of how it depicts intimacy, our need for intimacy, our desire for it, but also the, the existential terror of it, the difficulty of of maintaining it, and ultimately the danger, like you say, of that, you know, that idea of self erasure, um, you know, losing yourself to to um, intimacy in a, in a way that that feels complicated or dangerous to the self. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 like I said, it's something I've I've been writing about for a really long time. Um, and it's, I have in part because of a really, really difficult childhood in terms of socialization. Um, I, I, I mentioned when we were corresponding via email that I have a obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, that started manifesting itself, uh, pretty young. I think I was nine when I started showing symptoms and they got, it got pretty severe and I was already, a, like a quiet, nerdy, very bookish kid. Uh, I didn't grow up with a TV, so I did not have a, like a lot of the pop culture touchstones that a lot of my peers did. I listen. I, I grew up listening to NPR, <laughs> so kind of, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm almost forty now, and you know, like you know, talking about like not being able to connect to the kids these days. I've never been able to connect to the kids. <laughs> Nothing feels different now. I feel exactly the same as I did when I was like eight years old, which I guess is kind of good. You know, I'm used to it, but but it it does mean that. While I think that in in you know the last decade of my life I've gotten a lot better at being able to be social with other people, it's never come easily to me. And any form of emotional intimacy is really frightening to me. Cool. I mean, I am married um, very happily. Uh, I've been with my husband. Uh, we're coming up on our fourteenth wedding anniversary but well, we've been together thank you we've been together for a lot longer it's a few months away but we're, it's, it's going to be 14 years but we've been together for a lot longer um so obviously i can you know get close to people but it's really hard and it's really frightening and that fear of like losing some part of yourself or feeling obliged to someone else to the extent that you can disappoint them I mean, I'm terrified of disappointing people. Um, it's, it's, it's something I really struggle with. Uh, fear of rejection, uh, fear of suddenly giving them the tools that they will use to hurt you. Mm. Uh, these are, I mean, I think all of us struggle with these things. I, I think this is just kind of the human condition. Um, but speaking for myself personally, it's, you know, OCD makes you kind of socially awkward in a number of different ways. It doesn't just give you behavioral tics that are kind of hard to explain or can be disturbing to people sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's just, yeah, it's it's something I've spent a lot of time trying to work through and it's definitely very present in this. And I one of the things that that I was a little worried about when I was writing it was actually that, some neurodivergent people might actually find it kind of upsetting or feel that I was telling a, a, a story in a particular way that would be harmful. And mm. on one level, like I just write painful, difficult stuff and that's kind of what I do <laughs> and it's going to work for some people and it's not going to work for other people. And that's fine. I've made my peace with that. But when it, it, it's also true that especially when I'm dealing with stuff like neurodivergence or gender, I'm writing very much from my own experience and my own experience 
might be very upsetting for some other people. And I don't want to hurt people by accident. I want mm. to know that what I'm doing has a chance of hurting people so that I can kind of measure it. Mm -hmm. And so my, my, I was hoping, I was afraid that, that, you know, various neurodivergent readers would, would not feel like this was a thoughtful story, but I was hoping that the opposite would be true because again, I was kind of writing this out of my own ex mm. particular experience of neurodivergence and yeah, um, it's gratifying to me that you like actually like got something out of it in that oh, way. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, so my, it's, it's great that you bring up neurodivergence and it's great that you bring up OCD specifically because um, my wife has uh, OCD. She's got ADHD. She has generalized anxiety. To, those to, things or, overlap a lot. <laughs> a <Yeah>. lot. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and in the last, you know, year, year and a half, she's, she's really had a lot of difficulty with it. Mm. And one of the things that you know, we have come to learn and, and, you know, try to come to experiences the way that OCD, you know, ultimately shapes like her every interaction. And, yeah. and for those who don't have OCD and the, and don't know necessarily anything about it, I, I think media has a way of portraying neurodivergence in like this cutesy kind of way. Oh, it's God, like, yeah. you know, like Monk has OCD and, and it, it, is only ever manifest in like, I can't touch things with germs, you know, or something like that. Right. And that's, isn't necessarily what OCD is for my wife and others like my wife, OCD really manifests as a kind of perpetual gaslighting of the self, you know, yes. This, oh, like, God, yes. the, the prominence of intrusive thoughts. Oh my God. And, <laughs> yeah. And an inability to really like, confide in what you believe to be reality because your yes. brain rejects what should be objective truth to the point that you are so riddled with self-doubt that you can't commit to a course of action it's like a, yeah. a total breakdown of executive function and sometimes that looks like my wife looking at a jar of or, or not a jar but a container of yogurt and being like okay, I can see that this says that it's in date, but when was this actually purchased? When was mm. this actually put in my fridge? I have to confirm with several other people that I'm actually seeing what I'm seeing. Um, right. and, and, and as much as that feels like it shouldn't be a big deal, like just read the label, you, you can't. It's like you can't confide in that. And as a result... The entire world around you just kind of melts into this uh, weird sludge that you can't really make a whole lot of sense out of, and and it's exhausting. It is it's so exhausting, physically and mentally exhausting to go through that. So you know, as I'm reading this book, I realize I have ASD and so much of my ability to like connect to other people comes from literature. That's how I build an understanding of, you know, other people's experience. And so same kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Immediately as I was reading this, I was like, Oh my gosh, there's, this feels so much like uh, someone with OCD, you know, and like the, the weird kind of sense of unreality of, of the world you're living in and, and how, hazy or foggy it all gets when it comes down to you know trying to trust in ourselves uh, to be kind of autonomous yeah um like 100 million percent and i'm very glad that came through because um what you're describing is very much my experience of it too i did when i was a kid have kind of the counting thing and like i couldn't do certain things until i'd done them a certain number of times couldn't walk into a room before there, there was a lot of ritual and a lot of counting um, but as I got older, it started primarily manifesting itself in that kind of self-gaslighting and in particular violent intrusive thoughts. Um, I'm at a point now where I think I'm used enough to living with them that I, I see, I perceive my own brain as kind of like just a really shitty roommate that I'm never going to be able to get <laughs> off the lease. So when it throws awful images in, at me, I'm just like, oh God, shut the fuck up. Just stop, please. <laughs> I can't with you, but it's still 
it's still really upsetting and it's really hard to talk about because I think that for a lot of people who don't deal with this and don't know anybody who deals with it, there's this assumption that if your brain is conjuring up these ideas, you must actually want to do them. Mm. When, when you have compulsive, uh, when you have obsessive intrusive thoughts, it's actually the opposite is true. Your brain is identifying the things you most don't want to do or don't want to think about. And it's just throwing them at you incessantly to the point where you do start wondering, like, do I want to kill my pet? I keep thinking about killing my pet. Do I actually want to do it? And no, I don't. But but it's you're getting these these awful, awful messages from your own brain all the time and you can't turn them off very easily. And that was actually one of the things that I was consciously working with in the book is the idea of what we might actually be capable of if we're put in the right circumstances. What mm. kind of what kind of atrocities might, might we actually be able to commit? Mm. And the horror of just facing down what you might be capable of doing in a situation where that seems like the rational thing to do, but you also know that you can't be sure about that because you can't really be sure of anything. You mentioned um, psychological horror uh, in mm. the email, you know, in, in email, and for me, that's actually one of the biggest draws of it is because of my own, you know, experience. That sense of the source of horror in the world is that you cannot trust your own mind. Mm. Nothing is reliable. Nothing is trustworthy. Uh, you're 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 gaslighting yourself and you also can't be certain that you're not being gaslit by everybody else and it's mm. just as you say absolutely exhausting and frightening all the goddamn time <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh well i i didn't mean to you know just open this whole can of worms um but i'm really <laughs> glad that we've had this conversation because you know i think that this to your point sonny I think that this book is doing a lot of this work, you know, kind of out in the open, very vulnerably. And I think that's what makes this novella for me so impressive and, and what mm. makes it so necessary, right? It's because without books like this, without art like this, that frames our experiences in this way, you know, how would we ever open the door to comfortably talk about these things, to confront these issues in and for ourselves. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you. That, that, that really does mean a lot because again, and in, I intrusive thoughts are something I think a lot of people have a really hard time talking about. I did a whole thread on it, on, about it on Twitter one time, kind of went on a tear back when Twitter was, you know, not horrible. <laughs> and I was describing the experience of having violent intrusive thoughts and I got response after response and DM after DM from people who were like, oh my God, this is a thing. Mm. Other people have this. I thought it was just me. And on the one hand, it was great because I was like, I feel like I kind of in a small way helped those people because now maybe they didn't feel quite so alone or they understood, oh, this is something you can actually go to a therapist. There are, mm. there's, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy that you can do that helps. There's medication that can help. SSRIs mm. are helpful sometimes. And it, so it was great in that sense, but it was also absolutely fucking heartbreaking because it was mm. like, how many people are just suffering in silence with their own minds and they feel like they literally cannot discuss this with anybody yeah. because how do you tell someone who has no frame of reference that you are constantly thinking about doing the worst things to yourself and other people mm. and you don't want to do it, but you keep thinking about it that person could very easily assume the worst of you. Right. And even if they don't, even if they wouldn't, you're still very, very afraid that they might. So I, I, I almost wish in some ways I'd made it a little more explicit in the book. I would love mm. to write a more directly like engaging story about intrusive thoughts sometime. I haven't really mm -hmm. found a way to get mm -hmm. into that yet, but um yeah, anything that helps people feel a little less alone with their own mm -hmm. brains, I think, again, kind of helps strike against that sense of alienation in some ways, because sometimes like our own worst enemy there is ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, absolutely. As we kind of transition out, I know one of the things that we haven't um, talked as much about is is the way that gender is also represented in this mm. book um, and kind of shapes some of the book's experience. And I, I wanted to just kind of open the floor to you a little bit um, about how gender kind of plays into 
some of the events of the book and and some of those other existential existential terrors that the book has to to represent how how i think it plays in most directly in the book is that it kind of doesn't actually and i was sort of doing that very consciously i mean as as, as i mentioned to you earlier um mm -hmm. ellis the other character in the book is never gendered right. there are no pronouns for ellis not even they them there's just which no is, pronouns right which is very <laughs> i found that really interesting when you pointed that out because i had not pieced together ellis never is is referred to with pronouns to your point yeah and yet i had absolutely gendered ellis uh yes. from my own kind of reading of this book which makes this conversation i think for me all the more enlightening because depending on on how i conceive of Ellis dramatically changes my reading and the coding mm -hmm. of this book for me. Yeah. The coding, the coding I think is very, is very much there. And I mean, it's it, just about everybody I've talked to about this gendered Ellis in some way. And um, a couple of the people I've talked to directly about this didn't even notice, like did not notice the lack of pronoun, which makes me feel great because it means I managed to write almost 40,000 words where one character is never referred to with pronouns. <laughs> and I did it in a way that was fluid and natural enough that it's mm -hmm. not obvious that it's happening. I love yeah. that. I do, I was thinking very carefully about signs and signifiers and descriptors because yes. obviously these characters are not looking each other in the face. They can't. So there's very little direct physical description of this other character from Riley's perspective, but there is some. Right. And like, I think at one point, Ellis's earrings are described. Mm -hmm. And the way that they're described is sort of ambiguous. You know, this, this could be, this could absolutely be a cis man who just has earrings. Right. This could be, this could be kind of like a butch cis woman. This could right. be any variation of trans. Right. I think how I how I wrote some of the descriptors, I think it's it, I think personally that if you're inclined to see it anyway, it comes off as fairly queer coded, but you don't have to read it that way. And one of the reasons why I chose to do that, some of it was I was actually kind of like just curious to see what people would make of it. But the primary reason, narrative reason why I chose to do that is it, it, it was another way of kind of getting myself into the headspace of Riley's isolation. She's been alone for so long that now that there is this person physically in the same space as her, who she's engaging with socially, this person kind of has no gender, really. They're just mm -hmm. this person because they might as well almost be the only person in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you have no society and you have no culture, you just have another human being gender kind of loses a lot of its meaning mm. <laughs> and that's that is radically oversimplified and that wouldn't really work that way but riley is not engaging with ellis at any point as in a gendered way like mm. if this is a woman alone and vulnerable with a cis man right that's gonna work in a certain way if they're alone and vulnerable with a woman that's gonna work in a certain way too if they're alone with somebody who is, you know, coded as and presenting as non-binary, that's going to work in a different way. But it's just never made overt in the book at all. And I, again, I was sort of like, I'm doing, I'm bringing my own kind of thing to this. I'm aware that I'm doing it, but I'm also kind of putting the ball in the reader's court in that respect, because as mm -hmm. you say, the reading of the interactions between these two people can change radically depending on how you interpret the mm -hmm. signifiers of gender. I personally love art like this uh, <laughs> because I, I think that it, it really provokes fascinating conversations amongst people, you know, who have read it, who maybe have a different interpretation. Um, and, and I think that says a lot about their lived experience too. And, mm. you know, kind of how we, how we code our interactions or decode our interactions with one another socially, again, plays into some of these different themes, anxiety, alienation, you know, a, a kind of looming danger, you know, uh, an inability to trust in someone else outside of yourself, even as you mm. can't necessarily trust your own experience. I think all of this dovetails into really human anxieties and gives us space to explore them in a way that perhaps is a little bit more safe 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it's really really interesting to me to see who is who is picking up on it, who isn't, and mm. how people are interpreting this character. Because I, um, I really love Ellis, but I also feel like there are a lot of ways in which I don't really know Ellis very much. Yeah, I would love to hear some readers. Uh, talk about Ellis after this book comes out and they get a chance to <laughs> interpret it. Um, I just feel like that would be a, a great set of conversations to have. So as regards your future work, uh, what are some of the things that are coming on the horizon that you'd like to share? Well, I don't have anything that is slated for publication, um, except I did just sell a story to, I, I, I they haven't signed the contract yet, so I don't think I can kind of like name it explicitly, but I did just sell a story to a an anthology about trans futures, oh. which was a lot of fun for me because it meant I got to write something that was, I honestly wrote something that was like much more optimistic and happier than I'm usually writing. But yeah. I was kind of trying to do some of what we were talking about earlier, which was to like project forward into a future where it's not hard to be trans anymore. It's just kind mm. of it's just something, it's a way people are. And in fact, maybe everybody is kind of a little bit that way. And then to, from that perspective, look back on now and try to understand the mindset of people living right now. Uh, so yeah, it was really, really kind of fulfilling to explicitly imagine a trans future in that way. Um, I just finished uh, a book about deep sea body horror queer Ooh. deep sea body horror um i'm okay. really really excited about um well i'm not excited to edit that but i do need to edit it <laughs> um but yeah i'm hoping hoping to get that out there in the next couple of years um in one way or another uh and i just finished writing the first and now i'm in the middle of the second draft of uh a book about um an incredibly problematic and fairly horny relationship between an exorcist and a demon. Ooh, okay. I, yeah. I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah, except a, a little bit. It's, 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 it is, in the way that I described kind of a lot of what I'm writing being a primal scream, it's a little mm. bit of a primal scream against right-wing Christianity because the exorcist is not... Something about exorcist stories that kind of bugs me is they're all so goddamn Catholic. Oh, yes, I know. <laughs> and I understand why. And I really like those. I find those movies very comforting, actually, because they're just so conservative and, and it's mostly <laughs> conservative and so clear on good and evil. I find them kind of right. like very, very comforting. But exploring this from the right wing evangelical side mm -hmm. uh, and especially like the self-loathing of a queer person in that world mm -hmm. and the way that that can turn outward into doing harm to other people was something I really wanted to write about. So, yeah, um, hoping to get that in shape to send to my editor pretty soon. Uh, that those are all maybes. Uh, those are all things that will show up in the next couple of years um, if I manage to sell them. But uh, there's not a whole lot really on the horizon aside from that. Just looking forward to the publication of this book and talking to more people about it. I, I'm I'm so excited for the release of of Your Shadow Half Remains for sure. I I can't, absolutely can't wait for people to get a hold of this book uh, because I. I I was glued to it. It just and it shook me. It was, <laughs> it was so very very good. But I'm I'm also excited about any future projects. Um, I hope I hope to see them come to fruition because I think those will yeah. be really fun. Oh, one other point. Um, I just finished recording the audiobook for Your Shadow Half Remains. Oh, yes, I, I did. The so you you're I narrating it yourself? I'm narrating it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, uh, that's that going to be a, treat. a special treat. <laughs> yeah, it was. I know that some people are a little bit eh about authors narrating their own work, fiction authors at least. Um, but yeah, no, I, I worked with some great people at Macmillan, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm a little nervous to see how people react to it, but I'm really excited. I love that. That's so exciting. So where can people find more information about you and your future projects online? Uh, probably the most direct way would just be my website, sunnymoraine.com. Um, I'm trying to be better about updating it regularly. I'm trying to actually start doing some more regular long form essay writing, which I used to do mm -hmm. a lot of, and I'm trying to get back into that in part because of um, the book. There's some things I want to talk about um, there. Yeah. Uh, I'm also on Blue Sky uh, under the name uh, Dynamic Symmetry and uh not really on twitter anymore um 
I'm, I still have an account, but I don't really update. So yeah, that's, I'm, that's kind of gone from there. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm not super active there. So yeah, if people want to find me social media wise, probably blue sky is the place to go for that. Okay. Well, this has just been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of yourself with me. Man, I just can't <laughs> wait for this book to come out in February. I'm so excited for it. Thank you so much. This was this was super, super fun. And again, I'm so glad that it seems to the book seems to really work for you. Mm -hmm.